a lot. So thank you for coming today. Um, as you can see on the screen, we are studying Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And if you want to turn, we're going to be in Acts chapter 28 right here. So Acts chapter 28. I know David already opened in prayer, but I feel compelled to uh, do the same myself. So please forgive me and bear with me while we look to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. We pray that you would illumine your words to us today as we meditate on your word, meditate on his life and the things that have gone on in his life and how you've used him. We pray that you would apply this to our lives and our hearts and our minds as we focus on you this morning. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Right, so this summer we've been going through the life of Paul. And you'll recall some of these kinds of uh, uh, diagrams, the life of Paul. We've done a lot. We've, we've come far, you could say. Remember his conversion? Remember his, uh, his uh, escape from Damascus in the basket? Remember his various missionary trips, his first missionary trips? The church moving from Jerusalem to Antioch? The second missionary journey? Epistles being written? And last time... I spoke on this platform, we paused at Mars Hill, or the Areopagus, Aries Aries Hill, and we examined what Paul said there and the situation concerning that, and since then, we've moved on, and we've continued to cover ground in the life of Paul. We've uh, talked about his third missionary journey, the opposition, the growing opposition to him, Paul appearing... uh, before the leaders in Jerusalem, for Pentecost, Paul appearing before the Sanhedrin, Paul being arrested, imprisoned in Caesarea, appealing to Agrippa and Felix, uh, and then finally appealing to Caesar. And so last week, we followed his tumultuous travels as he journeyed to Rome, Paul's trip to Rome. This is the final infographic in our summer-long series here. And you'll note that he uh, he took a rather circuitous route. The normal trade routes were unable to be navigated because the wind blew where the Lord willed it to blow. And it blew him to the island of Malta. So if you're like me, you were gripped to that story last week. Now, I've read that story a number of times. In fact, after studying it, um, I appreciate it even more. What a really interesting uh, story we had there in Acts chapter 27, chapter 28, and uh, just the amazing adventure that Paul was on. But really, this was just just a journey to an end, and the end was Rome. And so at the end of last week's studies, he finally had reached Rome. But I want to look back on this journey just a little bit, because it's such an interesting journey. Um, if you noted, like me, that several times uh, Luke, as he recorded the book of Acts here, Luke the doctor, the physician, and historian noted that there were Alexandrian ships that they were on. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. What's the big deal with Alexandrian ships? So I did a little bit of research. I've been researching this because why would you point out that it's an Alexandrian ship? It turns out that Alexandrian ships are a bit different from the normal Roman ships. They were huge. They were absolutely enormous and I found this really fascinating. Now, I searched long and hard to try to find somebody somewhere who had recreated an an accurate pictorial representation of one of these Alexandrian ships, but I couldn't find anybody who was interested enough to do that. Obviously, I'm not an artist, 
So I will leave you with what research I did dig up, which is from a sophist, a satirist named Lucian of Samosata, who about, this is uh, close to 100 years or so after uh, uh, Christ's time. So this is in the uh, second century. But he describes one of these Alexandrian grange. And this is just an excerpt. And I just wanted to read this because it's, it's such an interesting uh, description here. And so he writes, now this is, in the, in the, this is translated in 1905. And so it's kind of a strange uh, English here from the Greek. But he writes, I say, though, what a size that ship was. 180 feet long, the man said, and something over a quarter of that in width. And from deck to keel, the maximum depth through the hold, 44 feet. And then the height of the mast with its huge yard, and what a forestay it takes to hold it. And the lofty stern with its gradual curve and its gilded beak, balanced at the other end by the long rising sweep of the prow, and the figures of her name goddess Isis on either side. As to the other ornamental details, the paintings and the scarlet topsail, I was more struck by the anchors and the capstans and the windlasses and the stern cabins. The crew was like a small army, and they were saying she carried as much corn as would feed every soul in Attica for a year. And all depends for its safety on one little old atomy of a man who controls that great rudder with a mere broomstick of a tiller. Isn't that an interesting description? Now, the rudder on these ships would have actually been a steering board on the side. And so these ships would have docked on the port side, that would be the left, and the starboard side, the steering board side, would have been on the right. And so the rudder would have been a steering board. They might have had one that they would put down on the left side once they were underway. But, um, but these ships were huge. Why were they so much larger than the other Roman ships? I did a little bit of digging, and it turns out that evidently Egypt... All of Egypt was the breadbasket for the Roman Empire. And so uh, the Egyptian government uh, evidently had extremely uh, precise and methodological controls over the the crops. They had very predictable rains and very predictable seasons. And so they could very predictably produce grains in very predictable quantities. And so they used these huge grain ships to... uh, ship the cargo around the Roman Empire. And so primarily to Rome itself, but uh, also to other uh, major cities throughout the Roman Empire. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and so I, I found a recreation here of a uh, an anchor. In the 1960s, they found four anchors off the southeastern coast of Malta, which is in a totally different area from where uh, traditionally throughout the centuries, people have assumed Paul was shipwrecked. Uh, there on the southeast coast of Malta, it's very different from the rest of Malta, and indeed they have a sandy beach. The rest of Malta is a bit rocky, but they have a... Um, so anyway, in 2005, they finally were able to examine the one remaining of the four uh, anchors that were discovered, and they believe that these might have indeed been the four anchors that were dropped in uh, chapter 27 of Acts. So... That's kind of interesting. So Paul traveled here from Malta up to Syracuse, Regium, and then finally up and into Rome. So we read that they put him there at uh, uh, Puteoli. So the city there is Puteoli. And then they went up. Actually, let's go back and look at that. If you look at the, oops, can't uh, fast forward these little uh, rolly dealy things. If you look at that, um, 
There's a brown dotted line going from Rome. Actually, from Rome outward, there are several brown dotted lines. Those are the Roman roads. All roads lead to Rome. And this particular Roman road that goes down and all the way through Venusia and to Tarentum, that is the Appian Way, the Via Appia in modern Italians called Via Appia Antica because it's antique. This is the uh, original ancient Roman road, and it's still there today. We'll talk more about that later. But uh, they traveled from Puccioli up to meet the Appian Way and then all the way up into Rome. And so from last week's, uh, just wanted to read a few of these verses from last week in verse uh, in Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 13, from there we weighed anchor, came to Regium. After one day a south wind came up, and on the second day we arrived at Puccioli. In verse 14, I just want to point out to you, There we found some brothers who invited us to spend the week with them. Paul really has a heart for people. Paul, you can see, has a huge heart for people. These days, I think uh, my whole perceptions of life, I think, are colored by the media. You know, I I like to watch movies. I, you know, in my last house, I had this giant screen that would come out of the ceiling, and I had a projector, you know, and I could have a great cinematic experience. Um, it was a lot of work to make that, and I don't think it was worth it, so I don't have one in my current house. But it was pretty cool in my previous house, and uh, I would watch uh, cinematic uh, productions, and, you know, it was just huge, you know. And I had, I had speakers, little speakers mounted in the ceiling and uh, a subwoofer on the floor because those speakers were too small to give you the full effect. And so it was, uh, it was pretty cool. And so I tend to focus on, you know, I was really captivated by the story of his travels his shipwreck, his confidence in God. But here something struck me. Some brothers invited us to spend the week with them. And so he was refreshed. Paul's focus is always on the brothers, always on the people. And that's something I have to remind myself about. And so we came to Rome, he says. So if you continue here in verse 15, he says, or Luke writes, that the brothers there, this is talking about Rome, had heard about us and traveled as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. When Paul saw them, he was encouraged and gave thanks to God. Just imagine Paul. Now, he has a good situation. He is a Roman citizen. He is maybe chained, maybe simply under guard with a number of soldiers. The the soldier in charge, Justice, he seems to have won him over. And so he has some sort of trust. He's a Roman citizen, and he's accused of uh, some sort of violation of a uh, foreign religious problem, the Jews. And so uh, to the Roman Empire, it's kind of like you're innocent until until you're found guilty with this kind of a situation. And so he's kind of got a good situation there. And he's encouraged by, he spends a week there in Puccioli, and then he goes on his way to Rome under guard, and you can see he's, it, they talks about some of that. Some of those guys have traveled as far as the form of Appius and the tr- three taverns. Let me go back to that map. You'll see the three taverns and the form of Appius there. Those are Roman halting places or stopping places. And those were built all along the Roman road system. About every, usually every 20 miles, sometimes 25 miles at the most, they would have a halting station where you could stop for the night. And that was about what uh, a normal person would be able to travel in a day, a little bit less than, so that you wouldn't have to travel, you know, from before dark to after dark. 
And so you'd be able to find a resting station. Now, these places don't exist anymore. It turns out that the area southeast of Rome was kind of marshy. And over the years, uh, the marsh has reclaimed most of uh, what's there, what was the form of Appius and what was the three taverns. But the Appian Way itself survives to this day. And I've got some interesting photos of it. The Appian Way. This is the ancient Roman road built many, many years before Christ, hundreds of years before Christ started, and you can walk on this road today. In fact, you can have Segway tours. You can uh, go uh, bike riding, and uh, these Roman roads still exist all throughout Italy. You can see these things, and this is where Paul was going. He was going to Italy, to Rome. This is, this is Rome, the center of the entire universe at that time they thought, right? And so imagine the sights he saw at Rome, the Pantheon. So continuing on our story here in Acts chapter 28, we read here that in verse 16, when we arrived in Rome, Paul was permitted to stay by himself with a soldier to guard him because he was indeed a Roman citizen. And he had seemingly won the favor of uh, Justice, who was in charge of him. And so, after three days, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, I was taken prisoner in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because there's no basis for a death sentence against me. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, even though I have no charge to bring against my nation. So for this reason, I have called to see you. And speak with you. <coughs> it is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. That's an astounding statement if you think about it. It's because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. What a juxtaposition. I think that's good. So, but now actually, before we continue, I do want to point out something here that this is the last of the we sections in Acts. Now, if you haven't been paying attention, if you read through Acts, you'll see that Luke. Dr. Luke, as he records the happenings in the book of Acts, sometimes he said, and we did this, and we did that, and we did this, and we did that. And other times in the book of Acts, he says, and they did this, and he did that, and they did that, and he did that. Now, the difference is, when he says we, we're assuming that Luke was among the people who were doing that. And so Luke accompanied Paul, it would seem, on this journey, this whole journey to Rome with the shipwreck and everything. Luke and also Aristarchus, if you'll recall. Now, this is the end of the last we section. So presumably, Paul had uh, another mission for Luke. Luke, could you go on and look to the brethren in such and such a town? I've heard that, uh, you know, they need something. We don't know what he sent them on to do. So, um, but this is, this is the last of the we sections here. And so it's because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. So I want to talk about the hope of Israel. What's the hope of Israel? What is the hope of Israel? They're going to... Conquer the Romans? What are we looking forward to? Well, I have some verses for you in Jeremiah 14, verse 8. O hope of Israel, its Savior in times of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who stays but a night? Jeremiah 17. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away will be written in the dust, for they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. Who is the hope of Israel? The Lord. Right? The hope of Israel is not conquering the Romans. Right? The hope of Israel is the Lord God himself. 
it's for the hope of Israel that I am in these chains. For the hope of Israel. Isn't that interesting? For the hope of Israel that I am in these chains, that I am bound with this chain. Joel chapter 3, the Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. The Lord is the hope of Israel. The Lord is the strength of Israel. It's because of the Lord that Paul was in chains. And these Jews knew it. He's saying this. He's saying this because of the hope of Israel. And they know exactly what he means. And so let's read what happens here. The leaders replied to him, and they explained, We have not received any letters about you from Judea, nor have any of the brothers from there reported or even mentioned anything about bad about you. But we consider your views worth hearing, because we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. Right? And so they were familiar with the claims of Christianity, that they had not heard of Paul. And so verse 23, they set a day to meet with Paul, and many people came to the place he was staying. Remember, he was under house arrest. He expounded to them from morning to evening, testifying about the kingdom of God and persuading them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. Does that remind you of what Jesus himself did on the road to Emmaus? Now, on the road to Emmaus, I presume there wasn't a wall to stick a tape recording device to, but wouldn't you love to have a tape recording of it? Of uh, Okay, wouldn't you love to have a CD? I mean, okay, wouldn't you love to have a MP3? That's too old. A podcast? Wouldn't you love to have a podcast, I guess? Is that what we have these days? Of that, of that, he expounded to them from morning to evening. Just imagine, just imagine the words, the explanations, the pleadings, the truths from Scripture as the Holy Spirit just infused Paul's mind and he blasted it out to these guys. And here's the result. Verse 24, some of them were convinced by what he said, but others refused to believe. See that? He expounded the truth, but others refused to believe. They refused to believe. Verse 25, they disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. And I have the first little bit of it right here at the bottom of the screen. The rest of it's on the next screen. So here's what Paul said. His final statement, he says, The Holy Spirit was right when he spoke to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And if you're not following along in your Bible, can you guess where he's going next? Now, if you've got your Bible in front of you, you're thinking, oh, yes, I know exactly where he's going next. Verse 26. Yeah, but you know where that came from? Verse 26. This comes from Isaiah chapter 6. Now, let's, before we read this, this is sweet. I probably should have copied and pasted more of Isaiah up here. Do you guys remember Isaiah chapter 6? At the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6, uh, Isaiah, the prophet, he gets caught up into heaven. Pretty cool place, right? Well, he doesn't seem to think so. His eyeballs open, his jaw drops to the floor, and he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined! Strange thing to say if you're up in heaven, right? Well, Isaiah knew he was conscious of his sin. He says, Woe is me, I'm ruined! I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. I can't see the glory of the Lord. I'm a sinner. He knew his own sin. He was conscious of his sin. And you will recall that there were seraphim around uh, the Lord in the temple. And you'll recall that one of them uh, came and took a glowing coal and touched his lips and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. It's the context of the removal of sin 
After that, the Lord said, who's going to bring this message? And Isaiah says, I will, I will, I'll bring this message. And here's the message. This is the message right here. It's copied in the, this is in English, but this is a, a copy in the book of Acts uh, as the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to record it from the Septuagint translation. And it says this, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has grown callous. They hardly hear with their ears. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. What a statement. Amen. Can you imagine this coming out of all his final statement? He said, this is, this is you people. You people were described accurately by the Lord God hundreds of years before. Through Isaiah the prophet, hundreds and hundreds of years before, when Isaiah the prophet said, otherwise you might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. And so, again, the context there, I've got this verse from Isaiah. Now this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, your sin is atoned. It's the context of that where he gave his last final plea. Listen, you were prophesied about Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, you stiff-necked people, see with your eyes, hear with your ears. <laughs> That's really just a, a metaphor, or is it a simile? And it's, it's the, the true meaning is understand with your heart. Understand with your heart and turn to God from idols. And so in verse 28, he concludes his little, um, his little thing here. He says, be advised, therefore, that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. And they will listen. And they will listen. Now, if you're wondering what translation I'm using, this is the Berean Study Bible. It's a little bit more dynamic than my nice, uh, favored, uh, more literal translation. But I like, I like the dynamics. It seems to be pretty just plain English. So please bear with me. He says, Be advised, therefore, that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Now, if you have... Um, a King James or New King James derived kind of a translation, it will probably say something along the lines of, after he finished saying this, the Jews went away disputing among themselves. Of course, you can see that up in verse 25. They dis disagreed among themselves. And so this is Paul's final statement from the word of Isaiah the prophet. And he says, be advised, God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. I want to ask you about this. What is, what is God's salvation being sent to the Gentiles? What in the world is happening here? Is, is, are the Jews deleted? What happened? Yeah. No more Jews. Yeah. God's, you know, guess what? You guys had your chance. Pow! Right? And now it's time for somebody else. Is that what happened? Not at all. May it never be. Let me read. You, know, you can find full details if you simply will read uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, I'm not going to read all of Romans 9, 10, and 11 to you. But let me read some verses out of Romans 10, because this is Paul's argument here. Paul argues and asks from the scriptures, ask instead, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by those who are not a nation. Guess what, guys? The Gentiles are not a nation. Um, there are lots of nations, <laughs> but they're not a nation. But he makes us into a body. He says, I will make you jealous by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation without understanding. 
We didn't have any understanding. Gentiles had zero understanding. Zero understanding. He continues, and Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. Who in the world sought God? Which one of us sought God, right? I was found. He was found by me. I never sought him, but he was found by me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. And then he says about Israel in verse 21, but as for Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And so you can read the whole argument there in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you will conclude that God is certainly not finished with Israel. But there is this new mysterious thing that is happening. Let's read some verses about that. We're going to start by reading some of the verses that Paul wrote while he was in prison here in Rome. While he was in Rome, he wrote a letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 3, we read in verse 4, In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery, he's getting to the good part, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. This is a mystery. Isn't this great? What a crazy thing. Who's ever heard of this? The Jews, God's chosen people. And now we, there's this mysterious body called the body of Christ here. In chapter 1, we read about this, and God put everything under his feet and made him head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The body of Christ, this mysterious new new thing. The church is something that has been brought in. And this is what Paul is telling these guys there in Rome. And this is indeed uh, one of the emphases that we've tried to bring out through this whole summer series, that God has God is changing his way of dealing with man. He's temporarily setting aside the Jews, and we have now the times of the Gentiles. Now, one day the times of the Gentiles will be complete. God's going to once again bring the Jews front and center. But until such time, we have this mysterious thing called the body, the church. Now, that's not this building, by the way, right? This church is not, you know, part of some sort of an organism like a transformer, you know, it's going to walk up out of the ground and start marching across Orlando, right? No, it's not the building. The body is a body of believers, a body of believers. As soon as you believe, the instant you believe, bang, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into this body in a spiritual way. It's, it's a secret membership. You can't see it. We don't even have a membership card. It's invisible. They check mine out. It's invisible. It also collapses instantly. Look at that. So um, this new body of Christ, though, for, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a member of it. And so this new body of Christ is something I want to talk about because this is so different from the Jews. But yet Paul was so, you know, Paul would have loved to not be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul would have loved to be the apostle to the Jews. He would have loved, read Romans 9, 10, and 11. You can see his heart. He would have loved every one of those Jews to absolutely totally understand how God's plan is so much bigger than just conquering the Romans, right? And some of those Jews believed. Many of them did not. And so let's briefly talk for a moment, though, about this new body called the church. 
So I've brought this out before, and I want to bring it out again, because I think it's important to remember. It's something important to go back to and reflect on. This is going back to Acts chapter 2, in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the reason I bring this out is because these are the what we call the big four. There's lots of different things that the church does and is involved with, but these are the big four. When they came together, they did these four big things. Now, they had various other times when they would evangelize in a meeting or evangelize personally or do other different kinds of things, but these four are the big four. We call them the big four of the church. And it starts with the apostles' teaching. Now, you're getting a little tiny bit of that today, um, so you can understand what we are doing. We're repeating the teaching of the apostles, the apostles' teaching. And so that's pretty straightforward. Now, the fellowship, that's a slightly less straightforward. The fellowship, what is that? Well, we had a fellowship time just, a, you know, going on 45 minutes ago, or it ended 40, going 45 minutes ago. But the fellow, we had a little fellowship time where some people partook of our coffee and enjoyed our uh, newly available pumpkin spice, you know, creamer uh, flavor stuff, right? And we enjoyed the snacks. We've got cheese and other kinds of stuff like that. Zachary took at least half of those with him back to nursery. And uh, so we have some times of fellowship, but it's not just that time. We also, you know, after this meeting ends today, as soon as I get finished, you'll wipe your brow and say, time for lunch. We're going to have a lunch, a picnic lunch next door, and then we're also going to have time for games afterwards. Those are all fellowship opportunities. And so we, we try to spend as much time with one another as we can. After the Wednesday night meeting is over, unless Zachary really needs to go to bed early, we stay and we hang out with one another and we talk about things and we're involved in one another's lives, and that's all fellowship. <coughs> it's a lot less organized than the apostles' teaching because the apostles' teaching, we've got to schedule somebody to be up here for you know, 50 minutes or whatever it is, right? I mean, you've got to prepare, you know, however many slides we've got here, the fellowship. So the breaking of bread, now this is an important one, the breaking of bread. Now we have that service at 9.30, and I just want to bring to your remembrance, see what I did there? I didn't actually do that on purpose. I'm cleverer than I thought. So to bring to your remembrance what that is. So the breaking of bread is a time of worship and a time of remembrance. He said, this do in remembrance of me. And so we do. We break that bread and remember him. We proclaim his death until he come. And uh, so it's a wonderful time of worship and remembrance. We remember all that he's done for us, and we worship. What is worship? Worship's not a feeling. Worship's not an emotional high that you get when the lights are the right color and the band doing the band thing gets you in the right mood thing, right? Instead, worship is ascribing worth to the object of your worship right? Ascribing worth with all that you are. If you ascribe worth with your mind, with your heart, with your voice, with your whatever, by flipping to the right passages and meditating and saying, God, you are amazing. Or by standing up in the meeting and praising the Lord, worship. Much more could be said. And finally, prayer. We have a Wednesday night meeting for this. And this is a really good time of just sharing one another's burdens, as it says in Galatians there that we share it, we bear one another's burdens. And so that's a good, a good time to meet together. And it's indeed one of the important big four of the church. I won't belabor that point any further. So Paul was in prison in Rome for two years, we read. What in the world did he do during that time? Was it just wasted? Is that just a waste of time? 
Two years sitting in a prison. Well, actually sitting in a house, in house arrest, right? He wasn't sitting in a dungeon at this time. But it wasn't wasted. I'll give you the, the answer. He, it wasn't wasted. So what did he do during that time? Well, one of the things he did was he wrote what we call the prison epistles. So what are the prison epistles? Those are the epistles he wrote from prison. We're clever that way. So one of the first ones he wrote was probably Ephesians. He wrote to the believers at Ephesus, and he talked about the unity of the church. And he talked about the oneness of Jews and Gentiles. We're one in Christ. That an interesting theme, having just said, hey, the gospel's going to the Gentiles now, right? But it's not only to the Gentiles, it's to, any who, to whosoever will believe, right? If a Jew will believe, absolutely come, brother, and join us in adoption as sons of God. So the letter to Ephesians, he wrote the letter to Colossians. He talked about the uh, deity and the sufficiency, the complete sufficiency of Christ. You know what else he wrote? You guys won't be able to find this next one in, in your Bibles. But he wrote the epistle to the Laodiceans. We don't have it. But it's referenced in Colossians 4.16. Paul says, hey, you Colossians, read the letter to Laodicea and share your letter with them. Well, we don't know what really happened. But the letter to Laodiceans evidently was not inspired as much as the letter to Colossians. I wonder what he wrote. You ever get curious about that? Like, what in the world did he write? And it wasn't just lost for you know, until we meet him in heaven. And he's like, well, you know, I had this strange attitude when I wrote it, and turns out that wasn't what God wanted. We don't know. Anyway, he wrote uh, the book to the Philippians, and he, the Philippian uh, epistle is really filled with a lot of joy. And so talks about living the Christian life. He also urges Yodia and Syntyche to get along with one another. Come on, girls, ladies. Can't you guys just get along? And finally, he wrote this interesting book to Philemon, concerning this dude named Onesimus who'd shown up. And uh, Paul really liked Onesimus, and Onesimus got saved. And Paul said, you know, as much as I like you and you're a great help to me, time for you to go and get reconciled with uh, Philemon. So Paul wrote him this amazing letter. If anyone says that, you know, Christianity, you know, is pro-slavery, just they have not read the book of Philemon. It's, it's such an amazing, a unique appeal, an appeal to Philemon. Paul doesn't use his apostolic authority and say, by the apostolic authority vested in me, by the Lord Jesus Christ, by God himself, almighty, I command thee, you know, to free Onesimus. He doesn't say that. He just appeals to him and says, hey, he's a brother in Christ. You're a brother in Christ. What kind of brothers in Christ? You know, I, I plead with you. Just think about this logically, right? He doesn't say it in those words. But the book of Philemon. So the prison epistles were written while he was in prison. Um, what else happened? Well, the gospel was spread. We read in Philippians 1, in verse 12, Paul says, Hey, now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have actually served to advance the gospel. Now, how could that be? He's in prison. That could, can't, nothing good can come of that, right? Well, sure. Lots of good can come of that. Humanly speaking, it seems like a really bad predicament. But to Paul, he used it to glorify God. And he says, They've served, my circumstances have actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard that's the Praetorian Guard. These are the special guards just for the emperor there in Rome. The Praetorian Guard. They, those, did you know those guys get twice the pay, too, of a normal Roman soldier? It's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And most of the brothers, confident in the Lord by my chain, now dare more greatly to speak the word without fear. Isn't that an interesting phrase right there? 
How could his chains make someone else more bold? Because of his boldness, right? Think about that. That Paul was an encouragement to others to speak up and boldly proclaim the word of Christ without fear. So the spread of the gospel. I was going to go through uh, some of these, but let's, let's go through them quickly. Paul's companions while he was there in Rome. Paul's companions. Luke, the physician, the historian, Dr. Luke, accompanied him on the journey. And several times in the epistles appears as, you know, Luke, our brother, sends his greetings, right? So Luke seems to have come and gone over that two-year period of Paul's imprisonment. Aristarchus, he followed Paul there. And it seems he at least stayed most of the time there with Paul in Rome. Maybe he was kind of the the grocery shopping guy, since Paul's like, I'm stuck in the house. Can somebody go grocery shopping? Aristarchus would say, hey, sure, I will, right? Aristarchus, a fellow prisoner and a fellow worker is the way he's described in the epistles. Timothy was also there uh, several times with Paul when Paul was imprisoned in Rome. This is uh, Timothy as Paul's closest disciple, probably. Uh, You'll see in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Paul has great, great affection for this uh, dear younger brother in Christ. Tychicus, he was a messenger. He seen, it seems that Tychicus, it would appear, took the letters to Colossae and Ephesus. He's called the beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant. Tychicus was one of those that uh, hung around with Paul. Onesimus, this is the guy I was talking about, the runaway slave. He's called our faithful and beloved brother. And so Paul sends him back to Philemon. And uh, Mark, now you remember Paul and Barnabas parted ways over Mark. Remember that? Well, it would seem that they were reconciled. In the book of Philemon, he's called a fellow worker. And in 2 Timothy, Paul writes, hey, send Mark to me because he's useful to me. Send Mark to me. So there was certainly no animosity between Paul and Mark, as you might have thought from that uh, event earlier in Acts when Paul and Barnabas had to of Mark, right? So Mark was also there. There's someone named Jesus Justice, who was a Jewish fellow worker, and Paul says he's a comfort to me. Epaphras, he's the one who it would have appeared brought the gospel to Colossae and uh, possibly also Laodicea and Heropolis. We know that Paul didn't go to Colossae and didn't, didn't go on those roads, although maybe later he did, but Epaphras. Epaphroditus came from Philippi, remember, to minister to Paul. And he was there as well. And finally, Demas. Demas is called a fellow worker, except in the book of Second Timothy, he says that he forsook Paul, as having loved this present world. We'll get to Second Timothy in a moment. So here was Paul in the middle of the Mediterranean, right there in the middle of the Roman Empire in Rome, preaching the gospel to the guards. It has gone throughout the whole palace guard, and so he was there for two years, two years under house arrest. Now, Luke, we have now reached the end of the book of Acts, right? It says Paul stayed there two full years in his own rented house, welcoming all who came to visit him. Boldly and freely, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the end here. So what happened next? What happened next? What happens next? We don't really know. It's just conjecture. But we do know that he authored some epistles. And so we can deduce what he authored by, or what he did by what we find in these epistles. It seems he traveled. It seems he wrote these epistles. He wrote uh, 1 Timothy to Timothy at Ephesus, and he described uh, 
uh, the different his different concerns, and uh, he's concerned with the leadership and the care of the church. We call these the pastoral epistles because they're they're concerning care for the believers. And he wrote Titus concerning the churches of Crete, so First Timothy and Titus. Now, the book of Second Timothy was not written while Paul was free, so Paul evidently was freed for some period of time. Tradition says that Paul was taken prisoner uh, after the great fire of Rome in 64 AD. So we don't know. But um, his final word in his dying shout of triumph is 2 Timothy, written from prison, finally. But these, these epistles are primarily concerning the passing of the baton. These epistles are primarily concerning. So, for example, a great example verse is in 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul writes, And these things that you have heard me say among many witnesses, entrust entrust to faithful men who will be qualified to teach others as well. So so as I hinted earlier, um, he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus, and then it would appear that the burning of Rome happened. Nero blamed the burning of Rome on Christians. Clearly, it was the Christians who set Rome ablaze. And it's the context of that in which we find Paul's final epistle, 2 Timothy, Paul's final epistle. So while Paul was in house arrest in Rome for two years, and he wrote the prison epistles, he was under a very mild house arrest. He was arrested for offending some sort of a foreign religion, and he was a Roman citizen, so he had a lot of rights. Second Timothy was written from the perspective of having been accused of treason against the Roman Empire, of setting the city or instigating the setting of the city of Rome ablaze. So it was as a criminal he wrote Second Timothy. And you, you see some of the things that he says about that. But <coughs> he writes, oh, we're close on time. I just want to, just want to, so look at the look at the predictive power here that that Paul has. He says, "But understand this: in the last days, terrible times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money." Does this not describe today's culture? Skipping down for a few of those, without self control, verse five, having a form of godliness but denying its power, turn away from such as these. And I would urge you do the same. Second Timothy four for. Verse 3, for the time will come when men will not tolerate sound doctrine. We are in this day today, right? There are churches who have been shut down because they have preached sound doctrine. There are other churches who have caved and said, oh, God doesn't really mean that. Uh, There's really no such a sin. Everything is relative, whatever, right? Saying whatever they need to do to appease the culture. So much more to be said. I'm so out of time. So, that with itching ears, they'll gather around themselves teachers to suit their own desires. And so Paul has this concern in his final epistle. Second Timothy is a great book. I encourage each one of you to read Second Timothy, Paul's last, last book. And it's a really, really wonderful book or a, a epistle. And so what he writes to Timothy is this. As for you, continue in the things you have learned and firmly believed. Continue in them. I would encourage you today. We are surrounded by a culture that's rejected Christ. We're surrounded by a culture where many so-called Christians have gathered for themselves teachers that will teach them and given their itching ears what they want to hear. But as for you, continue in the things that you have learned and firmly believed since you know from whom you have learned them. So Paul also 
explains his circumstances. He says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What an example for us to, to follow. From now on, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not to me only, but to all who crave his appearing. Crave his appearing? I do. There's the verse, get Mark and bring him with you. He's useful to me in the ministry. The last words of the Apostle Paul at the end of 2 Timothy. He says, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message would be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles would hear it. And it was. The message was fully proclaimed and the Gentiles that God willed heard it. So, the life of Paul. At the end of Acts chapter 28, we read, Boldly and freely he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Boldly and freely. This was written while he was in prison. Well, in house arrest. So he wasn't free in the sense of not being manacled. He was free in the sense that he had no inhibitions. Right? Boldly. Freely. With nothing holding him back. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. This reminded me in Acts 28, of Matthew 28, when Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples. He doesn't say, go and read them John 16 and check off the little box, you know, with a little check mark. Okay, John 16 to you. John 16 to you. John 3.16 to you, right? Jesus said, go and make disciples. And this is all did. Go and make disciples. In verse 20, teaching them, right? This is, this is what we're commanded to do. And this is what Paul did faithfully. Paul faithfully did this. And so I have uh, run out of time. And so let's go ahead and uh, just look to the Lord. And we will uh, thank him for this example of Paul. What an amazing life Paul lived. Sold out for Christ. Absolutely sold out knowing that he's going to receive nothing but better things. For me to live as Christ but to die to Paul was gain. And so it is with us. To die for us is gain. So let us look to the Lord and just thank you for this example. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this inspirational story of the Apostle Paul, who seems almost superhuman. But as we now understand, he was a real man. He had weaknesses. We think of his uh, thorn in the flesh that he uh, prayed about. But yet your grace was sufficient for him. Lord, we pray that for us as well, that no matter what our infirmities in the flesh are, that we would rely on your grace. We would trust in your grace and help and mercy in our time of need to help us as we fulfill your mission to share the good news and to make disciples, to teach people, to understand all that you have to offer in Christ. And so we ask these things and praise you and thank you in the name of your son, Lord Jesus Christ.